I want to say welcome to those of you who are here with us in the house, as well as uh, those who may be joining us uh, online. We're so happy that you're here with us. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we get cranked up with the message this morning. The first is, if you're a part of our church family and you don't currently receive our weekly electronic newsletter called The Loop, let me just encourage you to email us at info at nlcca.org and just write loop. And Cheryl Schaff, our admin assistant, will get you on that list. Uh, that's the primary way that we communicate through the week in terms of events, things that are coming up. Obviously, we're not going to make uh, Sunday morning stage time kind of a, a roll of 10 or 12 or 20 announcements. So that's the best place. If you're not on that loop email letter, please email us again, info at nlcca.org. Just put loop, and we'll make sure that you're a part of that email list going forward. also want to say... If you are uh, new or newer to New Life and you have never been to a Journey 101 luncheon, that's your first step here, right? That's, that's kind of your time to just hang out with us for about an hour right after the 11 o'clock service, right upstairs. We feed you lunch. We have childcare available if you sign up ahead of time. And we just kind of cast vision about who we are as a church family, where we feel like God is taking us as a community of faith. And so we're having our next Journey 101 lunch next Sunday after the 11 o'clock service. So again, if you're new, newer to New Life, uh, maybe you've even been here for like a year, but you've never uh, come to a Journey 101 luncheon, we just want to invite you to that. Uh, I'll be there. Pastor Jonathan will kind of lead that. And so you can sign up online, register on the website. If you need childcare, uh, you can sign up for that as well. If you are new here, we're in a message series through the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And so if you have a Bible or maybe you have an app or something like that, go ahead and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. We're in a series called Holiness, Hostility, and Hope. And for me, one of the things that, that changed drastically when I first began to follow Jesus in my early 20s is I really began to love the Word of God. And some of you maybe can relate to this, but I can remember as a kid uh, reading, reading the Bible and, man, I, I might as well have been reading like the Wall Street Journal in Italian or something. I mean, it just, it was words on a page. It didn't make sense to me. There was, there was nothing there. Like my affections weren't stirred. Like there was, there was really nothing there. Uh, but when I began to follow Jesus as a sophomore in college, I can remember sitting down in my dorm room and opening the Bible, and it was like it was alive for the very first time. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was like, like it was reading me as I was reading it, right? Now, I, I still didn't understand everything. I still, to this day, don't understand everything. But it was like God was distinctly speaking to me through these ancient scriptures. It was awesome, right? And many of you, I know you, you have that story. Right before God opened your eyes, before He opened your heart to the beauty of the gospel, right? The, the Bible was just dead to you, wasn't it? It was just kind of boring. Maybe you, you would go to church as a kid or a teenager and you'd hear the gospel of Jesus, you would just kind of kind of yawn. It didn't do anything for you. But then one day, by God's grace, He illuminated your heart and your mind to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, and you begin to love Jesus and love His gospel and cherish His word and His ways. For the very first time, that was my experience. One of the things that I've learned that the Bible does amazingly well is it presents relevant truths via the, the art of, of contrast. And the Apostle Paul is, is an absolute master at this art. I think one of the reasons that he uses this form of communication is because it really is so effective at illuminating a truth. 
Even today, in our uh, society, in our culture today, we use the art of contrast, right? If you go into uh, any high-end jewelry shop, you look at a, a diamond. I can remember doing this when I was also in my early 20s. and I was about to propose to Cheryl, right? I go into this, this jewelry shop, and I'm looking for the perfect ring because I'm going to propose. And like, pretty much every single time you do this, the very first thing the jeweler, the jeweler will do is pull out what? Like, like a black piece of felt or, or something like that to put the, the loose diamond on or the diamond earrings on or, or the diamond ring on. Oh, why, why, why do they do that? Because it's really only against like that dark backdrop where you can see the contrast that you, you truly can see all of the beautiful facets and intricacies of that precious jewel or that diamond. I experienced the art, art of contrast in a even more practical way uh, in college. I, I think I've told this story before, but uh, before I was following Jesus, I was in a, a relationship, had this girlfriend, and we were getting pretty serious, and so we, we were even talking in, uh, about marriage, and then I began to, to follow Jesus, and, and she wasn't following Jesus at that point in time, and so we, we kind of drifted apart. We ended up uh, breaking up, and I can remember in that moment being really devastated by that loss. So, so like, so devastated, in fact, that I was actually a little bit angry at God. It's like, man, God, uh, you know, I, I follow you, like I give my life to you, and, and not only do I lose all of my friends on my college campus, but like this, this girl who I thought I was going to marry and wanted to be with, and now I've lost her as well. Like, I follow you, and this is what I get. And I can remember distinctly, like the next year, I, I transferred out. I went to another university. I just needed a, a fresh start. And I can remember looking across the campus and, and seeing this girl with blonde flowing hair walking across the campus, right? God is good, you know. I knew God existed. And he's going to prove it to me by giving her to me as my wife, right? And I remember going to her and inviting her to a cookout with, with a bunch of my friends. And I remember just getting engrossed in conversation with her. Like, man, she, she loved the same things I loved, man. Like, she loved Jesus and I loved Jesus. And we both had the same shared vision and goals. Like, we wanted to live life together and do ministry together and do all these things. And she was really pretty on top of it. It was just, it was absolutely amazing. And look, it was only through the contrast of a previous relationship that I was able to see just how beautiful and unique the new one was. See, this is how contrast works in life. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is going to do for us this morning. He's going to give us actually three different contrasts that we're going to be looking at that I think are very helpful. The first one is he's going to contrast the Word of God with the Word of man. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to contrast two responses to the Word of God. We can either embrace it or reject it. And then he's also going to contrast uh, two results of our response, either transformation or wrath. So we'll kind of go through those three contrasts as we go along. I'll just kind of serve as your tour guide. I'm going to point out three different truths, so we're going to wrap up with an application, and uh, then we'll be done. All right, so that's the game plan. Let's get to it. First Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. We'll go through verse uh, 16 together this morning. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to these brand-new baby Christians in the city of Thessalonica who have just heard the gospel, have accepted Jesus Christ. They're following him. They're suffering greatly because of their newfound faith in Christ. And the great apostle is writing them to encourage them. He writes them this. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. 
For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And Paul begins this section by celebrating the Thessalonians and their reception of the gospel. And then he contrasts their reception to the gospel with the Jews who rejected the gospel, the word of God. And see, the reality is the same thing I think is true for us today. That was true for the people in Paul's generation. Embracing the gospel as God's word brings life. And rejecting the gospel as God's word brings wrath. Well, this is something I think our generation desperately needs to hear today. Listen, though it's a hard message, though this would be a very offensive message for some, probably even some of you who are here in the room today, maybe some of you who are watching online, this is, this is an offensive message. And isn't that why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, this will be on the screens for you, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. Paul is going, hey, listen, this stuff is going to seem like really stupid to a lot of people. Like the stuff that we believe, this, this, this Jesus that we follow, this way that we live, it's going to seem foolish to a lot of people in the world. And didn't it seem foolish to many of us, right, before God saved us and allowed us to see the beauty of Jesus? So let me, let me just say kind of on the front end before we dive in any deeper, if you're here this morning in the room with us, maybe you're uh, tuning in, you're watching online with us, and, and, and you're not yet a believer. And I know we have a number of people who are here every single week who are in that category, man. You're just kind of exploring things. You're just really kind of unsure. You're, you're kind of on the fence. But let me just say, first of all, we're, we're happy that you're here. But here, here's my challenge for you on the front end. Would you just pray a prayer right now and just say something like, God, if any, if any of this is real, like if, if anything this clown is about to say on this stage right now is actually from you, would you illuminate my mind and my, my heart to understand and see that this is actually truth? God, like I don't, I don't want to count as foolishness something that's actually from you. Like I, I want to be open to hearing truth. Would you just pray that prayer with an honest heart and say, God, if any of this is real, would you help me to see that it's real? And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through these three or four verses. We're going to take them apart just kind of one bite at a time. So let's, let's look back at the first one, verse 13 again. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, when Paul uses that phrase, the word of God, I think he has in mind both the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, as well as the divine word of God that we have recorded for us in the Bible, right? In Paul's day, that would have been the Old Testament scriptures, as well as the teachings of the apostles that were at the time circulating in the early churches that we now have recorded for us in the New Testament. Now, I think it's fascinating that that Paul uses two words here to describe how these Thessalonian believers interacted with the word of God the gospel of Jesus when they first heard it. First he says, the first word he uses is, he says, they, they received it. They received the word of God. Now, that Greek word is kind of like the idea of, of taking something within yourself. 
like joining your inner self to something else. And so what Paul is saying here is that, man, you, you guys heard the word of God and, and you guys internalized it to such an extent that it actually like became a part of who you are. Right? This, is, this is not just like a, a new intellectual belief system for these Thessalonian Christians. They now have, in a real sense, joined their very souls to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the word of God. Like it's in their DNA. That's how deeply they have received it. Now, before I uh, came here to New Life, I, I was, uh, for about eight years, I served on staff at another church as, as pastor of discipleship and missions. And, and so one of my jobs was to develop local and global uh, partnerships for the sake of the gospel. And so we established uh, at, this, at this church that I was serving at a partnership with a, a city in southern uh, Paraguay. It's one of the, the, most, the, the least reached cities in, in the entire Americas, less than 4%. Uh, Christians, and in this city, it was is one of, one of the most violent cities in South America. Like murder rates through the roof, prostitution rates through the root, through the roof. Uh, like tons of drugs, just just a really really hard area. And so so we partnered with a, a local man, uh, a pastor, to plant a church in in that city. And we'd go down three times a year because we wanted to develop relationships with these people. We wanted them to know who we were. We wanted to know who they were. We wanted them to, to trust us. We wanted to build a relationship with them. So we went down multiple times a year to the same city. And we would go through the neighborhoods right when we arrived. And we would knock on doors, these little shanty shack drug houses. And we would begin to invite their kids to come out and hang out with us. We'd do a VBS every single week for all the kids. And then we'd do like a big uh, presentation where we'd present the gospel to uh, the adults like on Friday night. So we'd kind of invite them to all of these events that we were going to have going on. And it was incredible. Like the, these people that literally had nothing. I'm talking about families of five, six, seven, dirt floor, one room. Like they're cooking right by their bed, right? They, they, they had nothing. And almost without fail, as soon as we knocked on their door, they would welcome us in. Like they almost wouldn't even give us a choice. Like they would pull us into their shack. And they would make us sit down and they would bring out their choicest food and drinks and they would serve us and they would listen to us and they would invite us to spend the night in their homes and they would invite us to come back. It was like we were a part of their family. They welcomed us in with so much warmth and grace. It was amazing. It's one reason why I think every single born-again follower of Jesus ought to go on at least one global mission trip at some point in their lives because it will absolutely revolutionize the way that you see the world. It's incredible, but this is kind of the picture I feel like Paul is painting for us. This is how the Thessalonians accepted the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. Like They, they welcomed it in, became a part of who they were, became a part of their family. And then Paul uses a, a second word actually to describe how these brand new Christians received the word of God. Not only did they receive it, that's the first word that he uses, but there's a second word he uses. He says they also accepted it. They received it, yes, but they also accepted it. Now that Greek word carries this idea of like, like gripping something with your hand really tightly. So just imagine if you're out, let, let's say you're hiking somewhere way up uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway or something, and just imagine that you're kind of on this really treacherous trail and like off to one side, there's just like a two or 3,000 foot drop, man. And, and, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the ground just begins to crumble underneath your feet and you slide and you're falling off that cliff to your certain death. And as you fall, you glance up and you see a strong hand, a strong arm reaching out to you. 
Like in that moment, you would, man, you would grab, you would grab that hand, you would grasp that. Like there was nothing that could make you let go of that hand in that moment. And that's exactly how Paul is saying these new Thessalonian believers accepted the word of God, like eagerly, almost desperately clinging to it. Like nothing could make them let go of it. God had spoken to them and they were enraptured by it. And that's the first kind of big truth that I want to point out to you this morning. This will be on the screens for you. Number one, God has spoken to us. Church family, let me, let me just say that again. Like the God of this universe, the creator of all that is, is not a silent God. He has spoken to us. He has communicated with us. He invites us into a dynamic relationship with him as we receive the gospel of Jesus, as we interact with his revealed word to us, the Bible. Church, have we lost the wonder of that? Have we lost the wonder of that corporately as a body of believers? Have we lost the wonder of that individually as followers of Jesus? That God is not off somewhere in a distance he is near to us. He speaks. He has spoken. That he longs to connect with us as his creation. I've had people say to me throughout the years, uh, hey, Chris, listen, if, <laughs> if God wants me to believe what you believe, if God wants me to pledge my allegiance to him the way that you seem to have pledged your allegiance to him, like he's, he's going to have to actually appear to me and speak to me. And in those moments, like, I, I, just, I just want to scream to them, like, he has spoken. He has spoken. Like, he spoke to you by sending Jesus into this world 2,000 years ago. And living a perfect, sinless, blameless life for you that you could never live. And dying a brutal, substitutionary death to pay for your rebellion and your sin and mine. And he rose again to give you everlasting life now and in eternity like he has spoken to you. And not only that, he's left us with his revealed word called the Bible. Like, like he has spoken. How much more clearly could he speak to you, dear brother, dear sister? I love the way that Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3. 16, also on the screens for you. Paul writes this to young Timothy, this young pastor. He says, all scripture, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Paul is saying, God has spoken. He has spoken. What a stunning truth. And notice back in 1 Thessalonians, the chapter that we're just reading, Paul also contrasts the word of God with the word of men. And I think we too in our generation should be careful not to elevate the philosophies of men or the opinions of culture to the same place as divine revelation from the creator of all that is. Earthly wisdom is not heavenly wisdom, friend. They're not the same thing. The opinions of culture shift with every generation. If you're over the age of 60, you've already seen this happen multiple times in your lifetime. The opinions of culture shift every 10, 15, 20 years. But the word of God stands forever for all generations. Now understand this. I, I listen to popular guys. There are podcasts that I listen to. There are guys on Twitter 
uh, that I follow that as far as I can tell are not, not Christians, they're not followers of Jesus, they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they, they help me think through things like logic and philosophy and self-discipline and goal-setting and all those things that I, I find important and interesting, they help me think through those things more clearly. But understand this, that the words of those men can, can never, and I'm keenly aware of this, the words of those men that I follow, they can never transform my heart the way that the Word of God has and continues to do. And because of that, I cannot elevate the words of men to the level of the Word of God, man. I appreciate the way that a pastor up in Manhattan, Tim Keller, says it. Keller says this, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. See, the word of God is not good advice for us to follow. It's good news for us to fully embrace with our lives, just like the Thessalonians that Paul is celebrating here in this book that we're reading. The words of men, the words of women may inspire us, but only the word of God can actually save us. That's why Hebrews 4 says this, for the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. And it penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. No word of man can do this. In church family, th that is precisely why we should come to the word of God every single time, every single morning or evening when we open it with a very teachable and humble hearts. And man, when we come to places in the scripture that may rub us the wrong way, or maybe we come to places in the scripture that we just flat out wish weren't there. And listen, for me as a pastor, I stumble upon those passages pretty often. I'm just like, God, really? Man, I don't want to teach this. This is hard. Like, I'm not going to make any friends if I teach this. I'm not going to make any, any friends if I believe this. We come to those places in the Scripture, just rub us the wrong way, or we just wish weren't in there. We come to those places, and we assume that it's us that needs to change, not the Bible. We assume that it's us that needs to change, not the Bible. And the issue that I see today with so many professing Christians is that that formula gets flipped on its head. And so if I disagree with Scripture, there's something wrong with Scripture, not something wrong with me. And I've said this before, I'll continue to say it. Spiritual maturity is coming to the places in the Bible that we may disagree with and having the humility and teachability to say, Jesus, you are right and your word is right and I am wrong. Will you please shape my heart to your word and your ways because I know that these are meant not to restrict me but to allow me to flourish in my life. So we come to those places, spiritual maturity is saying, Jesus, you're right and I'm wrong. And guys, look, isn't this ultimately kind of like the oldest lie in the book, the oldest lie in human history? We go back to Genesis chapter three, the fall of mankind, right? What was what was the lie from the serpent to Eve in the garden? Do you guys remember? What was the lie? Did God really say? Did God really say that you couldn't eat the fruit from this tree? Nah, man, he didn't really mean that. Look at it. It's delicious. 
You're going to enjoy it like you've never enjoyed anything before in your life, Eve. It's going to make you more like God, man. You're finally going to be happy. You're finally going to experience freedom in life. And the same stinking lie that's been told from the very beginning of time is the same lie today that tends to lure us to our own destruction. Did God really say? Did God really say that about sex outside of marriage? And that feels very old-fashioned to me. It feels very old-timey. That feels like that was for another generation. That was for another culture. That doesn't apply to us as Americans in 2022. Did God really say that? No, he didn't really mean that. Let's just twist these Bible verses a little bit to say something that maybe makes us feel better about our lifestyle choices. Did God really say that we should, as followers of Jesus, be radically generous with our financial resources to expand the kingdom of God? No, surely God didn't really mean that. He didn't mean that. Surely he didn't mean that. Did God really mean that we should selflessly love our enemies? Not just our friends, not just our family, the people that oppose us, the people that hate us, the people that malign us and slander us. I'm supposed to love that guy? Surely God didn't mean that. Or he meant that for someone else. If God just knew how much that person had hurt me, how, how deeply that person had wounded me, the things that they've said to me, the things that they've done to me, he would never expect me to love them. Now, surely that's not what God meant. Man, we, we buy the same stupid lie from all those years ago in the garden. We still are enraptured by these lies from the enemy today. I love this quote from Richard Nyberg. He's one of the greatest theological uh, ethicist of the, the 20th century. This quote will be on the screens for you. Richard writes this, The great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when someone takes radically something that was always there. Namely, the truth of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. And Paul continues on in, in his writings. This is uh, verse 14. He says this, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the church of God and Jesus Christ that are in Judea. So the first churches that were established, kind of the Jerusalem area, saying you guys have imitated them. Well, how have they imitated those churches? He tells us, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul is saying, listen, the result of you guys embracing the gospel, embracing the word of God, is a life that is actually being transformed in a very tangible way. And that's the second truth that I want to point out along the way this morning. This will also be in the screens for you. Not only has God spoken to us, but his word, number two, transforms us. Right? Paul has mentioned there's two possible responses to the word of God. You can either embrace it or you can reject it. And Paul is saying here, listen, there are significant ramifications for either response. For those who respond by embracing it, there's this inner life transformation that can be seen by the world around us. And Paul is saying here, as far as I can tell, as far as I understand what he's saying here, is that one of those outward marks of that inward transformation is a willingness to suffer for Jesus. A willingness to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, hey, listen, you guys have imitated the church in Judea who have suffered for Jesus because now you also willingly suffer for Jesus. If you remember back to chapter 1, Paul actually celebrated that these Thessalonians suffered for Christ with joy. 
they didn't just suffer. They weren't just willing to suffer. They actually suffered with joy, right? And as a pastor, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, man, I've witnessed so many of you over the last five years suffer, walk through unimaginable passive grief and suffering and sorrow and pain and loss with an undergirding sense of joy. And for those of you who have modeled that for me, I just want to say personally from the stage, thank you. It encourages me to imitate you that when I suffer in my life, I can actually suffer with joy because I've seen so many of you do that in your own walks. See, these Thessalonians would have, would, have, would have never chosen life outside of their own comfort zone, but now that they have received the gospel of Jesus, they have embraced the word of God, they're being transformed so radically that they are now willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ with a sense of joy. And I think that's probably a good, healthy question for all of us to ask this morning. If you're here and you would say that you're a follower of Jesus, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? See, oftentimes we say, are you willing to live for Jesus? It's a good question to ask. There's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. But are you, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Has the, gospel, has the gospel changed you to the point that suffering for Christ would, would actually in some senses be a joy for you? Now, to be sure, these Thessalonian brothers and sisters, they, they suffered in ways that most of us never have, and by God's grace, hopefully most of us never will. They were arrested, they were interrogated, they were imprisoned, they were kicked out of their families, some of them perhaps even killed for their faith in Christ. The question for us is more like, are you willing to not be cool in your high school? Are you willing to not be cool in your college campus because of Jesus? Are you willing to lose friends at work? Are you willing to be mocked, to be ostracized in the office? Maybe not invited to the neighborhood cookout because you believe in Jesus and you believe that his word is actually true and all of the implications that flow from that, right? Relational implications, financial implications, sexual implications, work ethic implications. Listen, you're probably not gonna be the cool kid on the block if you follow Jesus authentically. Are you willing to step into that? Now, for sure, that's low-key suffering, but how many of us are even willing to low-level suffer for Jesus? And that's also, by the way, church family, why it's so important for us to have a community like this that gathers of like-minded believers, man, so we can encourage each other. Like, man, you had a hard week, man. You, you had people reject you at school, reject me too. Let's talk about it, man. You can keep, you keep going. Don't, don't stop now. You can do it. God's got you. Let's, let's keep walking out this gospel life together. We can build authentic friendships. We do life together. This is why we, we need a community of faith that we walk this journey out with. The word of God transforms us when we eagerly embrace it like the Thessalonians did. But what happens? What happens to those who reject the gospel of Jesus and the word of God? He tells us, he continues on, also be on the screens for you. Paul says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And they drove us out and they displeased God and they opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul contrasts the Thessalonians who eagerly embraced the word of God with the religious Jews who then rejected the word of God. And his charges here are pretty stout. They're actually pretty stunning. Look at verse 
15 again as he lays out this, these charges against these religious Jews who rejected the word of God, rejected the gospel of Jesus. He says, hey, you Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and you killed the prophets. So the prophets that came in the Old Testament prophesying about Jesus, the coming Messiah, you killed them too, by the way. And then you drove us out when we tried to te teach you about Jesus. And even now you displease God and you oppose all mankind because you try to hinder us sharing the gospel with Gentiles so that they might believe and follow Jesus as well. He goes, listen, the, those who reject the word of God are of the same spirit as those who killed the prophets, those who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, those who drove the apostles out, those who displease God and oppose all mankind. And Paul, Paul continues by saying, listen, they are, these people that reject the word of God, reject the gospel of Jesus, they are filling up their measure of sins. And once that measure is full, they will taste the wrath of God Almighty. Now the picture here is kind of like these people who reject Jesus, man, their, their sins are stacking up, they're, they're building up like a tsunami. And once God says enough, and God will one day, believer, he will one day say enough. Once God says enough, those sins that they've built up in their lives are going to come crashing down on their heads in the form of God's holy and righteous wrath. You might be thinking to yourself, man, what do you, what do you mean by, by wrath? Like that sounds super heavy and that sounds super mean and that doesn't sound very loving, Chris. Well, here's what, here's what Paul means by wrath. Wrath here refers to God's good, holy, righteous anger against evil. Okay, so like, just think about when you hear a story on the news of a, a, a small child who's been abducted by some monster who abuses them in some unspeakable way, kills them, discards their body in some ditch or in the woods somewhere. When you hear stories like that, maybe even now when I just gave you that little synopsis, does, doesn't, doesn't a righteous wrath burn in your heart like it does mine? Like, I hear stories like that, and I'm not, like, I just want to put war paint on and go Old Testament on somebody, right? I'm going to go find them, make them pay. Like, the, that child needs justice. Like, it enrages my heart when I hear stories like that. I want justice for that innocent child. I want justice for that monster who would, it would injure an innocent small kid. Like, that, that wrath, that righteous rage even in us that burns in our hearts. Now, imagine, imagine that magnified in the heart of a perfect, holy God who sees all and knows all. Friend, do you, do you think even for a moment that any injustice will escape him? Do you think even for a second that any injustice in this world, any sin, any rebellion will escape him? Would he be a loving, would he be a just God if he overlooked sin and evil in this world? Would, would that even be a God worth following? Of course not. And so Paul is giving us this really stark reminder here of what's at stake, friends. And this is the last kind of truth I want to drive home this morning for you. Then we'll kind of land the plane. Number three, also on the screens for you. Those who embrace the word of God, Paul is saying, find life. Those who reject the word of God bring wrath upon themselves. You're like, Chris, dang it, man. I was having a good morning. Played in the snow yesterday. Had a nice cup of joe this morning, a warm, fresh bagel, and now you just unleashed this harsh message on me. 
And if that's kind of your impression, friend, friend, may I just suggest to you this morning that this warning is actually God's mercy to us. It's precisely because he loves us that he's giving us this warning. It's precisely because he loves us that he cares enough to say there is a tsunami of judgment coming. But there's a lifeboat that I've given you and his name is Jesus. Won't you get in and find life? You don't have to be swallowed up by the coming judgment. This is why I sent Jesus to save you and redeem you. And doesn't Paul above anyone else know this to be true? You know the story of the Apostle Paul. He was a terrorist who persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ, persecuted the saints, tried to stamp out the church, oversaw the murder of countless Christians in the first century. Until one day he encountered Jesus traveling on a road to a city called Damascus to persecute more Christians. And Jesus revolutionized his life, right? He went from a man who rejected the gospel of Jesus to a man who embraced the gospel of Jesus, and then he leveraged the rest of his life to make sure that others had the opportunity to do the same. So I just want to say, man, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here in the room, you're watching online, I just want you to know this. I want you to hear this in the middle of what I know to be a really hard, offensive message to many. I want you to know that wrath can be averted. Wrath can be averted. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, 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 it doesn't matter what your past is, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you were doing last night or looking at online last night. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want you to know that, friend. A life raft has been provided. The tsunami of wrath can be averted. But it's only found in relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to say, if you're a Christian, you're, man, you're already in that life raft named Jesus. Listen, I want you to understand, you have one primary job for the rest of your life. Who are you bringing with you? Who are you inviting in with you? How willing are you to suffer for Jesus so that others might see and know what we have seen and known, that there is a good God? That is not silent. He's spoken. He pursues us even now in this moment. And our job now as those who have followed him and pledged our allegiance to King Jesus is to invite others along the path with us to find hope and life in Christ. Church, may God grant us the grace and the courage to do that this week in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our offices, in the parks where we play. May he grant us the ability to do that well this week for his glory, for our good. Let's pray as the band comes, and then we're going to worship. Father, we are so grateful this morning that you are not a God who is silent. You have not left us in this world to grapple through the darkness, trying to feel our way about to you, but you have spoken very clearly to us. You have demonstrated your love through Christ. 
who came into this world, born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life for us that we could never live, that died a brutal death for us, that we deserve to die, but rose again to give us everlasting life, eternal life, the abundant life, starting now and then all the way into eternity. You are not a God who is silent, and you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit. Thank you for being an intimate God. Thank you for being a personal God. Thank you for being a God who has spoken and still speaks today. Help us, like the Thessalonian Christians 2,000 years ago, to accept your word, to embrace it, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't really make sense, even when it runs against everything that our culture is screaming to us that we should embrace as truth. Would you help us to cling to your unchanging ways and your unchanging promises throughout all generations? And God, like the Thessalonians, would you help us to be transformed by it? Help us not just to be something we come here every week for an hour on Sunday morning. We just do kind of an intellectual exercise and we get some knowledge about the Bible and we kind of file it away in the back of our brains and it doesn't ever really kind of change our lives. God, help that not be true of us. Would you help us be radically transformed by your word, by the gospel of your son as we are led by your spirit? God, help it transform the way that we see the world around us. Help it change the way that we interact with other people, the way that we view the world, the way that we spend our money, the way that we invest our time. God, everything about our lives, would you radically transform us by your living and active word as we're led by your spirit to be your ambassadors in this day and age of darkness in our culture and in our world. This world desperately needs men and women who are light. Help us to be those men and women, God pray all of these things in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship.